This is an audio recording of the introductory essay to John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ by J.I. Packer, permission granted by Banner of Truth Trust. In light of these facts, we can now give a direct answer to the questions with which we began. Surely all that J Owen is doing is defending limited atonement. Not really. He is doing much more than that. Strictly speaking, the aim of Owen's book is not defensive at all, but constructive. It is a biblical and theological inquiry. The purpose is simply to make clear what Scripture actually teaches about the central subject of the Gospel, the achievement of the Savior. As its title proclaims, it is a treatise of the redemption and reconciliation that is in the blood of Christ, with the merit thereof and the satisfaction wrought thereby. The question which Owen, like the Dort divines before him, is really a concern to answer is just this. What is the gospel? All agree that it is a proclamation of Christ as Redeemer, but there is a dispute as to the nature and extent of his redeeming work. Well, what saith the scripture? What aim and accomplishment does the Bible assign to the work of Christ? This is what Owen is concerned to elucidate. It is true that he tackles the subject in a directly controversial way and shapes his book as a polemic against the spreading persuasion of a general ransom to be paid by Christ for all, that he dies to redeem all and every one. But his work is a systematic, expository treatise, not a mere episodic wrangle. Owen treats the controversy as providing the occasion for a full display of the relevant biblical teaching in its own proper order and connection. As in Hooker's Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, the polemics themselves are incidental and of secondary interest. Their chief value lies in the way that the author uses them to further his own design and carry forward his own argument. That argument is essentially very simple. Owen sees that the question which has occasioned his writing, the extent of the atonement, involves the further question of its nature, since if it was offered to save some who will finally perish, then it cannot have been a transaction securing the actual salvation of all for whom it was designed. But, says Owen, this is precisely the kind of transaction that the Bible says it was. The first two books of his treatise are a massive demonstration of the fact that according to Scripture, the Redeemer's death actually saves his people as it was meant to do. The third book consists of a series of sixteen arguments against the hypothesis of a universal redemption all aim to show, on the one hand, that Scripture speaks of Christ's redeeming work as effective, which precludes its having been intended for any who perish, and on the other, that if its intended extent had been universal, then either all will be saved, which Scripture denies, and the advocates of the general ransom do not affirm, or else the Father and the Son have failed to do what they set out to do, which to assert, says Owen, seems to us blasphemously injurious to the wisdom, power, and perfection of God, as likewise derogatory to the worth and value of the death of Christ. Owen's arguments ring a series of changes on this dilemma. Finally, in the fourth book, Owen shows with great cogency that the three classes of texts alleged to prove that Christ died for persons who will not be saved, those saying that he died for the world, for all, and those thought to envisage the perishing of those for whom he died, cannot on sound principles of exegesis be held to teach any such thing.
and further that the theological inferences by which universal redemption is supposed to be established are really quite fallacious. The true evangelical evaluation of the claim that Christ died for every man, even those who perish, comes through at point after point in Owen's book. So far from magnifying the love and grace of God, this claim dishonors both it and him. For it reduces God's love to an impotent wish and turns the whole economy of saving grace, so-called, saving is really a misnomer on this view, into a monumental divine failure. Also, so far from magnifying the merit and worth of Christ's death, it cheapens it, for it makes Christ die in vain. Lastly, so far from affording faith additional encouragement, it destroys the scriptural ground of assurance altogether. For it denies that the knowledge that Christ died for me, or did or does anything else for me, is a sufficient ground for inferring my eternal salvation. My salvation on this view depends not on what Christ did for me, but on what I subsequently do for myself. Thus this view takes from God's love and Christ's redemption the glory that Scripture gives them, and introduces the anti-scriptural principle of self-salvation at the point where the Bible explicitly says, Not of works, lest any man should boast. You cannot have it both ways. An atonement of universal extent is a depreciated atonement. It has lost its saving power. It leaves us to save ourselves. The doctrine of the general ransom must accordingly be rejected, as Owen rejects it, as a grievous mistake. By contrast, however, the doctrine which Owen sets out, as he himself shows, is both biblical and God-honoring. It exalts Christ, for it teaches Christians to glory in his cross alone, and to draw out their hope and assurance only from the death and intercession of their Savior. It is, in other words, genuinely evangelical. It is indeed the gospel of God and the Catholic faith. It is safe to say that no comparable exposition of the work of redemption as planned and executed by the triune Jehovah has ever been done since Owen published his. None has been needed. Discussing this work, Andrew Thompson notes how Owen makes you feel when he has reached the end of his subject that he has also exhausted it. This is demonstrably the case here. His interpretation of the texts is sure. His power of theological construction is superb. Nothing that needs discussing is omitted, and so far as the writer can discover, no arguments for or against his position have been used since his day, which he has not himself noted and dealt with. One searches his book in vain for the leaps and flights of logic by which Reformed theologians are supposed to establish their positions. All that one finds is silent, painstaking exegesis and a careful following through of biblical ways of thinking. Owen's work is a constructive, broad-based biblical analysis of the heart of the gospel and must be taken seriously as such. It may not be written off as a piece of special pleading for a traditional shibboleth, for nobody has a right to dismiss the doctrine, limitedness of atonement, as a monstrosity of Calvinistic logic until he has refuted Owen's proof that it is part of the uniform biblical presentation of redemption, clearly taught in plain text after plain text. And nobody has done that yet. You talked about recovering the gospel, said our questioner. Don't you mean that you just want us all to become Calvinists? 
This question presumably concerns not the word, but the thing. Whether we call ourselves Calvinists hardly matters. What matters is that we should understand the gospel biblically. But that we think does in fact mean understanding it as historic Calvinism does. The alternative is to misunderstand and distort it. We said earlier that modern evangelicalism, by and large, has ceased to preach the gospel in the old way, and we frankly admit that the new gospel, insofar as it deviates from the old, seems to us a distortion of the biblical message. And we can now see what has gone wrong. Our theological currency has been debased. Our minds have been conditioned to think of the cross as a redemption which does less than redeem, and of Christ as a Savior who does less than save, and of God's love as a weak affection which cannot keep anyone from hell without help, and of faith as the human help which God needs for His purpose. As a result, we are no longer free either to believe the biblical gospel or to preach it. We cannot believe it because our thoughts are caught in the toils of synergism. We are haunted by the Arminian idea that if faith and unbelief are to be responsible acts, they must be independent acts. Hence, we are not free to believe that we are saved entirely by divine grace through a faith which is itself God's gift and flows to us from Calvary. And when we come to preach the gospel, our false preconceptions make us say just the opposite of what we intend. We want rightly to proclaim Christ as Savior. Yet we end up saying that Christ, having made salvation possible, has left us to become our own saviors. It comes about in this way. We want to magnify the saving grace of God and the saving power of Christ. So we declare that God's redeeming love extends to every man and that Christ has died to save every man. And we proclaim that the glory of divine mercy is to be measured by these facts. And then, in order to avoid universalism, we have to depreciate all that we were previously extolling, and to explain that, after all, nothing that God and Christ have done can save us unless we add something to it. The decisive factor which actually saves us is our own believing. What we say comes to this, that Christ saves us with our help. And what that means, when one thinks it out, is this, that we save ourselves with Christ's help. This is a hollow anticlimax. But if we start by affirming that God has a saving love for all, and Christ died a saving death for all, and yet balk at becoming universalist, there is nothing else that we can say. And let us be clear on what we have done when we have put the matter in this fashion. We have not exalted grace in the cross, we have cheapened them. We have limited the atonement far more drastically than Calvinism does. For as Calvinism asserts that Christ's death as such saves all whom it was meant to save, we deny that Christ's death as such is sufficient to save any of them. We have flattered impotent sinners by assuring them that it is in their power to repent and believe, though God cannot make them do it. Perhaps we have also trivialized faith and repentance in order to make this assurance plausible. It's very simple. Just open your heart to the Lord. Certainly, we have effectively denied God's sovereignty and undermined the basic conviction of religion that man is always in God's hands. In truth, we have lost a great deal. 
And it is perhaps no wonder that our preaching begets so little reverence and humility, and that our professed converts are so self-confident and so deficient in self-knowledge, and in the good works which Scripture regards as the fruit of true repentance. It is from degenerate faith and preaching of this kind that Owen's book could set us free. If we listen to him, he will teach us both how to believe the Scripture gospel and how to preach it. For the first, he will lead us to bow down before a sovereign Savior who really saves, and to praise him for a redeeming death which made it certain that all for whom he died will come to glory. It cannot be overemphasized that we have not seen the full meaning of the cross till we have seen it as the divines of Dort display it as the center of the gospel, flanked on the one hand by total inability and unconditional election, and on the other by irresistible grace and final preservation. For the full meaning of the cross only appears when the atonement is defined in terms of these four truths. Christ died to save a certain company of helpless sinners upon whom God had set his free saving love. Christ's death ensured the calling and keeping, the present and final salvation, of all whose sins he bore. That is what Calvary meant and means. The cross saved. The cross saves. This is the heart of true evangelical faith. As Cooper sang, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood, shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. This is the triumphant conviction which underlay the old gospel, as it does the whole New Testament. And this is what Owen will teach us unequivocally to believe. Then secondly, Owen could set us free if we would hear him to preach the biblical gospel. This assertion may sound paradoxical, for it is often imagined that those who will not preach that Christ died to save every man are left with no gospel at all. On the contrary, however, what they are left with is just the gospel of the New Testament. What does it mean to preach the gospel of the grace of God? Owen only touches on this briefly and incidentally, but his comments are full of light. Preaching the gospel, he tells us, is not a matter of telling the congregation that God has set his love on each of them and Christ has died to save each of them. For these assertions, biblically understood, would imply that they will all infallibly be saved, and this cannot be known to be true. The knowledge of being the object of God's eternal love and Christ's redeeming death belongs to the individual's assurance, which in the nature of the case cannot precede faith's saving exercise. It is to be inferred from the fact that one has believed not proposed as a reason why one should believe. According to Scripture, preaching the gospel is entirely a matter of proclaiming to men as truth from God, which all are bound to believe and act on, the following four facts. 1. That all men are sinners and cannot do anything to save themselves. 2. That Jesus Christ, God's Son, is a perfect Savior for sinners, even the worst. 3 that the Father and the Son have promised that all who know themselves to be sinners and put faith in Christ as Savior shall be received into favor and none cast out, which promise is a certain infallible truth grounded upon the superabundant sufficiency of the oblation of Christ in itself, for whomsoever, few or more, it be intended. 4. 
that God has made repentance and faith a duty requiring of every man who hears the gospel. A serious full recumbency and rolling of the soul upon Christ in the promise of the gospel as an all-sufficient Savior able to deliver and save to the utmost them that come to God by Him, ready, able, and willing, through the preciousness of His blood and sufficiency of His ransom, to save every soul that shall freely give up themselves unto Him for that end. The preacher's task, in other words, is to display Christ, to explain man's need of Him, His sufficiency to save, and his offer of himself and the promises as Savior to all who truly turn to him, and to show as fully and plainly as he can how these truths apply to the congregation before him. It is not for him to say, nor for his hearers to ask for whom Christ died in particular. There is none called on by the gospel once to inquire after the purpose and intention of God concerning the particular object of the death of Christ. Everyone being fully assured that his death shall be profitable to them that believe in him and obey him. After saving faith has been exercised, it lies on a believer to assure his soul, according as he find the fruit of the death of Christ in him and towards him, of the good will and eternal love of God to him in sending his Son to die for him in particular, but not before. The task to which the gospel calls him is simply to exercise faith which he is both warranted and obliged to do by God's command and promise.